Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Shambhavi Sarasvati. Shambhavi is an American householder sannyasini and a teacher of Trika Shaivism and Dzogchen. She is the author of Nine Poisons, Nine Medicines, Nine Fruits, Pilgrims to Openness, The Play of Awakening, No Retreat, Poems on the Way to Waking Up, and other books. Shambhavi serves as the spiritual director of Jaya Kula, a nonprofit community of practitioners with teaching centers in Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, and now recently San Rafael, California. Hi, Shambhavi. How are you? I'm great. Hi, Jacob. So this is actually not our first rodeo. We did a podcast interview together about three and a half years ago now, which is kind of insane to think it's been that long. Um, episode. <laughs> Episode 29, um, which was a wonderful uh, episode. For those that haven't heard it, please go back and give it a listen. Um, and I have, you know, since then, I, I sort of told myself with regards to the podcast, I wasn't going to return to any past guests, even though I love them so much, until after the 100th episode. Well, now we're... Um, at uh, we're past 100 episodes and we're also in this pr incredibly precarious time and of course you know you came to mind as someone who has a lot of valid insights and and some contemplative wisdom that is uh, would be very fruitful to consider and contemplate right now and actually as i was thinking about it it's wild but i think this is going to be episode 108 shambhavi Oh, wow. I love that. <laughs> and I'm actually talking to Shambhavi on her Skype uh, screen name, which is Shambhavi108. So, you know, people hear about this this idea 108 or this number 108 all the time, if they're familiar with, you know, yoga and uh, the wisdom traditions. Can you talk about 108 just to start? And what oh, it, my what gosh. It means? There's so many ideas about 108. <laughs> yeah, there are. Uh, you know, some people say there's 108 lokas or worlds. Uh, then another idea is that eight and one add up to nine. And of course, with some exceptions, mantras are done in multiples of nine. Mm -hmm. And there are also nine grahas, nine planets that are used in Jyotish, which is Indian astrology. Uh, there's also, uh, there's an article by Georg Feuerstein, you know, you have to leave it to the Germans, <laughs> that outlines so many different complicated reasons for 108 but I'll just leave it at that I like simplicity yeah and it's always it's interesting to me because you know it's often called, referred to as an auspicious number and and people then say well why is it auspicious and is it uh, is, I've always sort of thought it's interesting to even ask that question why because it's auspicious because it's auspicious in a sense right auspiciousness is kind of a quality of reality uh, right? Like, what, right. Does, what does that mean th to say that auspiciousness yeah. is a quality of reality? So in the traditions that I practice in and teach in, the core practices are all meant to help you to make direct contact with the essence nature of reality or what's called the natural state. And in Trika Shaivism, the natural state or essence nature is alive and self-aware mm -hmm. and so it's the fundament from which everything is arising all manifest forms are arising and made of that alive self-aware base state you could say or natural state or we call it shiva nature just in the same way that waves are arising from an ocean where the waves are actually ocean <laughs> They're made of ocean, uh, and they have sort of a quasi-independent existence. So when we are doing a lot of sadhana, spiritual practice, or if we just get lucky and you know happen to be born more awake, <laughs> uh, what happens is the gates of our perception start to open. And through those extended perceptions, we can actually directly encounter and experience that alive aware reality and when we do that what we encounter is what we could call auspiciousness mm. I I call them I call that auspiciousness wisdom virtues because in my encounter with that natural state I encountered 
what I did not expect and what none of my teachers had ever explicitly taught me, which is that all of reality is made of wisdom and it's a kind of a virtue wisdom. For instance, compassion and mercy and kindness and devotion and this vast intelligence and curiosity and playfulness and a gladness, a feeling of gladness. So these are very definite and consistent perceptions slash experiences that I've had uh, of the nature of reality, of what our reality is actually made of. The interesting thing is that when we're talking about traditions like Trika Shaivism, which is referred to as a tantric tradition, many people focus on more on the energetic level of experience. So we could say in general that we have three related experiences that are on a cascade from or a continuum from more gross to more subtle. The physical level of experience is the most gross, and then in the middle is energetic experience. And then the most subtle is wisdom. When people are talking about Tantra, they often just get stuck on that energetic experience. You know, students will often come to me and say, oh, I felt a squiggle here, a tingle there, or a rushing in my spine. And, you know, that's great. But the real sort of prize, if you will, is to be able to directly perceive wisdom in every moment. Mm. And that wisdom that we perceive is utterly beneficent. Uh, there's, uh, it, it's hard to understand from our perspective when we experience suffering, but there is nothing but mercy and compassion and playfulness and gladness here. Well, that's beautiful. And I, and I'm hoping that's sort of where we can end up, but I want to, um, uh, circle in now, or rather bring in kind of the situation that we're encountering. Um, and of course, right now, I think for many people, they may find from the surface level, right, from the surface level of our experience, it difficult to grasp, um, you know, reality as wisdom or compassion, because there's this huge obstacle in our yeah. way. <laughs> and that obstacle yeah. is COVID-19 and all of the associated, you know, issues and struggles and challenges uh, that we're facing as a result of it. So um, what from, you know, your perspective as a, a teacher of Trika Shaivism, as a spiritual teacher more generally, are the main kind of challenges, you know, aside from our obvious um, uh, medical challenges. Um, what are the the primary challenges that we're facing um, uh, spiritually uh, in in the face of COVID nineteen and this and this epidemic or pandemic? Okay, uh, can I answer that like specifically with spiritual practitioners in mind? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I think the number one obstacle that I see happening is people forgetting their practice. Yeah forgetting the view of their traditions in the face of their anxiety, their fear, in the face of things seeming to be going terribly wrong. This seems to be, in a sense, a reason, <laughs> if you will, uh, to just become extremely ordinary and freak out or be very, very angry or... Uh, let yourself sort of sink into a mire of very uncomfortable feelings, feel victimized, threatened, etc. And I'm not saying that people sh should somehow, you know, through some trick of the mind, stop feeling these things. Mm -hmm. uh, these are all karmas that are manifesting. And one of the the one of the wisdoms in a situation like this or any extremely threatening situation that we encounter is that we get to see what the state of our practice really is. Yeah. <laughs> Can we remember to remain in the state of our practice or remain in view even while we're faced with some sort of existential threat or what feels like an existential threat? So the number one obstacle is forgetting our practice. Yeah. And in the direct realization traditions, the idea is that we would be in the state of our practice, whatever that might be, 
that we would remember to drop into the state of our practice and remember the view of our traditions 24-7, not just when things are easy or comfortable or it's convenient. So this is a wonderful time to remember to be in the state of our practice and to not compartmentalize and not give ourselves an out. The other obstacle is narrowness of field of view. One of the things I've noticed is that despite all of the discourse in in the public sphere uh, about privilege, so many people are forgetting that we can't always use we when we're talking about this quote-unquote new threat to us. There are millions and millions and millions of people around the globe who are facing existential threats every day of their lives. And there's a certain strata of people who, for whom facing an existential threat is a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I would encourage everyone who's a practitioner to really widen your field of view and understand that Existential threats are normal and natural. They occur all the time. If you've been sheltered from them, you know, that's something to take take note of. But uh, we need to widen our view, and that will help to ratchet down the level of reactivity around this, Mm. especially the form of reactivity that says, this is, you know, an unprecedented situation. It isn't unprecedented mm. at all. <laughs> uh, there have been many, many existential threats that have taken, that have addressed large swaths of human populations. And then there are the, you sort of say, micro existential threats that uh, threaten certain people every single day, if not every minute of every day. You know, people who have food insecurity, who have no health care ever, no social supports, nowhere to live. So this is a really good time to get some perspective as a practitioner and just as a human being and to understand our privilege more and to step out of our hothouse of self-concern. So I appreciate all, all that you're saying. I think it's really insightful and um, and important to reflect on. And um, and so you know, for those that are finding themselves, because it is like you're saying, it's not really a matter of rationalizing yourself out of these reactive right. fear experiences. Because some people just that's their triggered response is fear and anxiety. So um, you know, when what I hear you suggesting is that that's what the practices are for. It's sort of to get you sort of below that in a way, or or somehow to address that kind of field of uh, or that frequency of anxiety uh, somehow to find a bit of a leverage of freedom from which you then can um, engage with the more expansive view that's a part of these traditions. But I guess my um, we are speaking to spiritual practitioners and we're assuming that they all have practices. But what if there are some people listening and I'm imagining there are that don't sure. really have a core practice, don't have a stumba practice. Um, you know, what would be your suggestion for those students? What resources can we point them to, to to have something to work with right now? Generosity. So when we feel threatened or something is going to be taken away from us, the most wonderful thing we can do for ourselves first and foremost, but also for other people, is to give. Mm. because we all have an inexhaustible wellspring of love and riches, inner wealth, that we don't often recognize, especially in a culture that teaches us to be very self-protective and always, you know, even if it's not true, we have the feeling that we're always on the verge of losing it all or something like that. Mm. But we all have an inexhaustible wealth of uh, love and value to give. And even if we're practicing social distancing or we're staying at home, we can give money, we can give comfort, we can give prayers, 
uh, we there's many many things we can give. Some of us might even want to volunteer, like at food banks and things like that, if if we feel like capable of doing that. But there is nothing that can make us feel more in sync with ourselves and nature than serving and giving. There's also a beautiful form of meditation that uh, comes from Buddhist traditions called Tonglen. And Tonglen is a practice of giving. And it, it's also a practice of discovering our inexhaustible inner value and wealth. Mm. There is a, a version of Tonglen on our website at jayakula.org. And I've also posted it to Insight Timer. Uh, I think it's on SoundCloud also. But in any case, uh, there are many, many versions of Tonglen. I'm sure there's hundreds of versions on Insight Timer. But it, I think even if it's a, even if you're not practicing, it's not a difficult kind of meditation. It, it's not boring, as some people find meditation to be. So, <laughs> and I would really recommend that as a way of participating in supporting people in a subtle way and discovering that even in a time of threat, you still have indestructible value and you still have wealth. Mm. So, um, you know, we're talking about uh, fear and, um, and, and anxiety and, um, and, and one of the things that you write about in the Nine Poisons, Nine Medicines, Nine Fruits book is um, is in Medicine Seven. It's the Medicine Seven is called recognizing the wisdom in pain and fear. So I'm I'm just wondering how that teaching could be helpful right now. How can we work with our fear at this moment rather than or without being consumed by it? Mm-hmm. Well, in a sense, we want to be consumed by it, but not in an ordinary way. Okay. Uh, um, I've told this story before. I think I've written about it in one or two of my books. But when I was in my 20s, I developed a really serious fear of flying. Mm. Mm. And I had to fly or, you know, I wanted to fly. I didn't want to be someone who couldn't fly. So I kept flying. But I literally would hyperventilate and call crawl curl up in a fetal position on the plane and like oh gosh. ask the stewardesses to hold my hand as the plane was taking off. Oh. It was incredible. Yeah. I was terrified. I don't know exactly why it appeared at that time in my life, but it was pretty debilitating. In any case, uh, as I, as I wrote about somewhere, you know, my, my 20 something year old solution to that was to take Valium and drink food. <laughs> <on the plane. laughs> That would probably be my solution as well. <laughs> but it actually didn't help. Right. Uh, it just made me tired and scared. <laughs> oh, so it really didn't take away the fear. Anyway, eventually I learned to do open-eyed non-conceptual meditation. And I started to do that on the plane. And really, when you're doing that kind of meditation, you are completely defenseless. So I, I was sitting, you have no support, nothing to distract you whatsoever. And I would sit and the fear would just race through my body like an electric charge. Mm. It was unbelievably uncomfortable. And I just felt like the bottom was dropping out of my existence. And then as I was doing that, I, I really had this experience of God. I had this experience of reality and that it was the refuge, not being on ground as opposed to being on a plane. Mm. And at, after that happened, I couldn't wait to get back on the plane so that I could be terrified, so that I could practice in this way. Wow. Uh, fear is one of the emotions that we practice with in tantric traditions. And I think there's two ways that this is extremely useful and can help us find the wisdom in the fear. Uh, first of all, many people in our culture, and I would say many of my own students, uh, are afraid of being uncomfortable mm -hmm. yeah. in a way that is really debilitating and really an obstacle to practice. So if we can just let ourselves feel fear and not try to antidote it, if we can do our practice while being afraid, and of course when we're doing sadhana we're relaxing so the fear can express more, we can hopefully come to understand that it isn't so bad being uncomfortable, that we can survive being uncomfortable. 
And that will really help our practice. So there's wisdom in that. And then if we are feeling a lot of fear, we can recognize that as a great opportunity because again, we have a certain swath of our culture who doesn't really very often get to feel literal fear. We feel a lot of anxiety and self-worry, but that is very different than actual fear. So if we have an opportunity to experience that, we really can practice in a very traditional ancient way mm -hmm. by looking into that fear, letting it take over while we stick ourselves to whatever practice we're doing. And I think there can be some really profound results from that. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. So, um, uh, to continuing the the fear question, how does this connect to the fear of death? Because clearly, a lot of people are afraid of dying right now, um, because the threat is legitimate. Um, and of course, there are many um, contemplative spiritual wisdom teachers who who sort of discuss the this idea of of practice as being sort of a preparation to die in some way. And so, how can we how can we use that? You know fear of our own mortality as, as, um, in sort of the similar way that you're suggesting, how can we use that, um, in a, in a spiritual or contemplative way? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's maybe two different ways that come to mind immediately. Uh, before I did non-conceptual meditation on the plane, I had all kinds of routines that I would go through my mind to try to lessen the fear. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the ones that worked a little bit was I would think of all the people who had died throughout history and all the ways they had died. Oh, gosh. And That's I, a bit morbid. I would, I would, no, I would tell myself, if they can do it, so can I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. If they can get through it, so can I. <laughs> I don't know if that helps anybody. But... <laughs> I think there is there is something sort of um, it's and I actually said this recently because I was talking to also um, I believe it was uh, Isa about this but I had gone just before everything all the shit hit the fan with everything and we couldn't go out or go go to couldn't go to public settings <laughs> I went to this show called We're All Gonna Die and um, uh, or We're Gonna Die and it was sort of this woman basically sings at the end it's not a musical but it's sort of a one woman show and she sings songs and the end of it the the song the the lyrics are like we're gonna die and it's gonna be okay and and she invites everyone to to sing with her and so uh, the whole audience at the end was just singing we're gonna die <laughs> and even though yeah. you know to saying it's naturalizing the fear yeah and but also making it it's sort of like this shared catharsis right it's sort of like there was something comforting about it and yeah. because we all sort of think oh we all die alone we hear all these things we all die alone but you know and yeah I guess we do if we think about it in terms of our individual embodiment but. We all don't die alone in the sense that it's the the true sh one single shared experience that we all have. Mm -hmm. Well, birth too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so that that leads me to my second uh, way we might work with this if we have this capacity in our practice. My root teacher Nanda Mayama said, "We've never been born and we never died." Mm -hmm. And what she meant was uh, something like, again, the waves in the ocean. Something is arising and subsiding, but it is only quasi-independent. It, it isn't really an individual. I mean, if we were on the beach, this is, we normally see ourselves like this. You know, if we were the waves, we kind of get up out of the ocean and start wandering around on our own. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how we see ourselves as these separate entities. But when we have a little more opening in our practice, we start to feel, our, in a real sense, our continuity with everything. And that is the real refuge. So the, you know, the waves in the ocean, they just, when they arise, nothing has really been born. It's just an ocean expressing something. And then when it goes back into the ocean, nothing has really disappeared except some particular form. And this is a direct experience that we can have. So we can have this contact with the eternal that there is something here that is actually who we are and what we are made of and what we are arising from and going back to that always remains what it is, regardless of all these like crazy madhouse of manifestations. And if our, if we can keep using that experience as a touchstone for me personally, that's what really got rid of my fear of death. 
it got rid of it in the sense of I don't really feel like if this form goes away, anything is going away. I literally do not feel that anymore and ha don't have a fear about that. I still have some fear about like the way one might die. You know, I would really rather not like, you know, have certain kinds of deaths. Uh, there's this funny interview between the Dalai Lama and Christy Turlington ages ago. And she asked the Dalai Lama if he was afraid of dying. And he said, oh, no, no, no. And then he's paused and he went, just a little. <laughs> I mean, nobody really wants to be torn limb from limb. I think we'd all prefer to like die in our sleep. <laughs> exactly. But... Uh, if if in our practice we do have some experience of continuity or even maybe some experience of the eternal or of the timeless or of that self that never disappears that we are made of and a part of, if we have some contact with that, we can try our best to keep going back to that. And that, for me, really lessens the fear of death. Yeah. And as you've said, that kind of foundation or that reality is made of love and compassion. That's what we talked a lot about that in our first interview together. Um, so, you know, other ways, I mean, obviously we're talking about practice and you are talking about generosity, but how else can we access or what are some insights into accessing that foundation of love and compassion at a time like this? Well, one easy way is to take care of our bodies. Hmm. So this is a really great time to establish more routine. Yeah. A lot of our routines have been broken. Yeah. And what happens then is that our inner winds start to get disorganized. Uh, you could call it prana. It's called vata in Ayurveda. And that causes more fear. So when our inner winds are not seated properly, when we haven't seated our prana, then we feel more fear than normal. So it's important to establish some kind of daily routine, have a really grounding asana practice, eat good food, healthy food, uh, eating nourishing food that's high quality, that we feel good about how it was produced, is one way of experiencing love and generating a feeling of self-love and self-respect. Yeah. So yeah. we should have meals at the same time. Uh, many of us are having more home-cooked meals than we used to. Yeah. So, you know, if you can afford it, try to get really the best quality food you can uh, obtain. And then when you're cooking, you want to enjoy with all your senses mm -hmm. the different qualities of the food. The, invoke all of your senses, smell and sight and texture, you know, feeling the textures. And you want to pre-digest the food with your eyes and your senses and then try to eat in a loving environment. Um, what we did the other night was we had a virtual dinner party with our community. <laughs> so even if we're seeing fewer people than usual, we can still invite people into our homes you know, using video chat and things like that. So the way that we're on a physical and somewhat esoteric level the way that we are able to experience love as ordinary people who might not have, you know, some grand contact with the, the beneficence of all <laughs> is through building what's called our ojas. So ojas is related to immunity, but it's also the bridge between ordinary love and universal love. So when our ojas is strong, we have more possibility to feel refuge in nature to feel like it's there's some okayness behind all the upsetness yeah. uh, and there's more ability to weather difficult circumstances so eating good food eating it with attention from our senses pre-digesting it enjoying it eating it in a loving environment having routine uh, having beauty around us so fill your house with flowers if you can afford it uh, it's, you know, a good time to do home beautification projects, yeah. use essential oils that are sweet and full, uh, nourishing feeling, drink lots of good water, uh, try to get the best quality water you can. We use these filters called Berkey. It's like a filtration system that 
to from what I've experienced anyway is most like fresh spring water of any water that I've tasted. Mm. It's it's somehow recaptures some of the sweet taste of good natural water, which I think is really important for ojas. Um, get enough sleep. These are I mean these are very practical things, but they will put you more in touch with your own ability to love, to receive love, to feel like it's really okay no matter what. It's really okay. Even if I die, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a funny thing to think, but even if I die, I'll survive. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I, even if I die, I'll survive. I love that. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things just based on these, and I love these very practical, you know, suggestions, um, the one thing I had kind of, thought about was or or what I'm noticing of course is all of these articles coming out about cabin fever we're all going crazy but isn't it possible to kind of you know flip that around and turn it into kind of a a retreat situation like a retreat setting and so I'm just wondering if you have any kind of suggestions on how we might transmute our perception of our own home situation into something more divine and less like a prison mm-hmm well, I think it is if we don't have to go to work, if we're not considered essential workers and uh, we're not scrambling in some other way to pay the bills, that it is a very good time to do more sadhana. But I don't think it's a good time to isolate ourselves more. Right. So we, I think there needs to be more of a pulse rather than going on full-on retreat. I mean, some people will take any opportunity to go on a full-on retreat just because that's their nature. That's how they showed up, and they like doing that, yeah. and they don't really yeah. care about seeing other people. But for <laughs> yeah, for the rest of us who miss our cafes and dinner parties and things like that, uh, I think have a pulse. So, yeah, doing some, some additional sadhana, but also taking some steps to reconnect with people in different ways than maybe is possible. And also remembering to reach out to people who may be alone. Like if we're sheltering in place or have a stay-at-home order, there's a lot of people who do, who live alone. Yeah. And, you know, reaching out to those people and giving at least verbal support uh, if there's no other kind of support you can give because of the various orders in place to the people that are having to go out and work. I mean, I'm living with someone who works in a grocery store and he's just having a really hard time yeah. with yeah. the amount of work that is having to be done and the risk that they're putting themselves at every single day <laughs> and fending everyone else's anxiety at the grocery store. You know, it's exhausting. So there's – while I'm saying this because uh, I want to, in a sense, I'd like to send a message to some other teachers that I've heard online, teachers that I actually really respect, who have forgotten that not everybody lives like they do, and have given this advice, oh, we should all take this opportunity to go on retreat, and we should all do this, and we this, and we that. And, you know, there's just a whole heck of a lot of other people out there who don't have that option, yeah. and who, yeah. in some respects, are supporting us to be able to do that. So I just like to put that reminder out there uh, to, yes, it's a wonderful time to practice. Some of us have more time and aren't having to worry financially. Um, some of us are in a great state of fear. And so more practice would be so growth producing if we do it now. Yeah, It's yeah. always growth producing when we practice when, when we feel like we don't want to. And uh, also, though, to support in any way we can the people that don't have that option, don't have the options that we have. Yeah. I think we should also um, support those who are stuck at home with their 12 children and, and families. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, I was talking to my one of my best friends the other day, and, and actually I had only thought about the people who are alone and thinking how how potentially isolating that could be. And then she was talking about how she just missed that opportunity to get on the subway and read a book so that she could be away from her kids for a few minutes. I mean, obviously she loves her children, but there's, the, there's all sorts of, um, you know, kinds of situations that are, that are, you know, kind of challenging right now, but I appreciate, yeah, suddenly, yeah sorry, I just want to say, you know, suddenly all these parents having to homeschool, yeah, 
like in one minute they're suddenly teachers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's very difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but one of the things that as you were talking about reaching out, one thing that I initially from the very beginning noticed is that the shared experience of all of this has actually made me feel actually a lot more intimate with the people in my life. I mean, I've, I've, t mm -hmm. I've talked on FaceTime with like my, all of my friends, you know, most of my friends sometimes two or three times. And like, oftentimes, you know, living my busy New York life, I, w I would go sometimes, you know, weeks, if not months without talking to some of them. And all of a sudden we're all talking to each other. It's this incredible thing that, you know, the social distancing actually produces a kind of intimacy and, mm -hmm. you know, and as much as we want to critique the internet, I mean, thank God for it, because can you imagine yeah. what would it would be like without it? Yeah, it would be way worse. I think. So, yeah. <laughs> Not quite sure, but I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about um, all these wonderful things. And um, and I have a few kind of um, uh, considerations based on uh, your beautiful books, which, by the way, I should, you know, um, I'd like to mention to everyone that they should definitely get um, uh, at least the two I have, if not more, Nine Poisons, Nine Medicines, Nine Fruits. Uh, uh, also, the Reality Sutras, Seeking the Heart of Trika Shaivism. Those can all be found on Shambhavi's uh, or Jayakula's website, jayakula.org. Right, Shambhavi? Yeah, or on Amazon or wherever. Or wherever you buy, you buy your books online. Right. Um, so I wanted to go to Fruit 5, which um, you had, when we were talking about doing this interview, we said sort of would be a nice place to end up. And Fruit 5 of <clears throat> Nine Poisons, Nine Medicines, Nine Fruits is delighting in skillfully adapting to the play of circumstance. Um, and, uh, and one of the sentences that you actually mention, and uh, actually I'll just read the whole, um, I'll read the whole uh, paragraph. When you are more relaxed, a.k.a. more awake, the play of circumstance is actually enjoyable. Whether painful or wonderful, the extraordinary variety of circumstances is engaging, rich, astounding, and, e and often funny. The fact that you get handed a hard problem is on some level fun. You can experience the beauty in feeling sad and crying. Destru destruction and loss share a somewhat thrilling quality. Even physical pain is interesting. When outcomes surprise you, whether in a happy or painful way, there is joy in the dance-like capacity to adapt smoothly and skillfully. All in all, I would say that life becomes more like an amusement park ride or a dance festival or like surfing and less like a daytime soap opera. So, Shambhavi, can you, <laughs> so can you take us to that kind of destination or orientation? Um, because obviously, you know, initially we might think, oh, well, there's nothing wonderful about this. There's nothing, you know, um, enjoyable about all this death and, and sickness. So how do we get to that kind of perspective, um, you know, based on what we're we've been talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, we have to consider, especially in our culture here in the United States, changing our definition of success or of things working out. What does it really mean to have things be working out or be successful? And generally, even if we haven't articulated this to ourselves explicitly, what that generally means is I get what I want, I don't lose anything I want to lose. So that means that in order to power through reality, which isn't like that, reality is a huge improvisation. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, we have to hold on like maniacs to what we don't want to lose, and we have to aggressively pursue what we want despite whatever circumstances might be arising. So we want to change our definition of success or things working out from getting what we want and not losing what we don't want to want to successfully adapting to life's ever-changing circumstances. If we can change our definition of success to adaptation rather than holding on and getting mm -hmm. and sort of like upward climb then that is hugely relaxing because it's much more in line and in sync with nature. Yeah. If we think of the, uh, the, the functions of nature, according to most of the traditions from India, uh, creation, maintenance, destruction, withdrawal, and emanation. Okay, we love creation. We, we're fine. We're down with maintenance, but we're, we're against destruction. 
And so we can't adapt skillfully because we see destruction as something going wrong Mm -hmm. when it's actually just a phase of nature that's happening all the time of reality. So we want to enjoy perceiving circumstance and thinking about how can I adapt to this? How can I find a way to move in this situation? There's, as my Dzogchen teacher said, every circumstance is workable. And what we do as practitioners is we work with circumstance. We work with it. We collaborate with circumstances. We don't just keep maniacally trying to get what we want or make things the way we want them to be. We have to see ourselves in collaboration with circumstances. So as practitioners, we're being, what I say, positively practical. We're having a positive attitude, not about getting what we want, but about practically adapting. And we look at circumstance and we think, how can I adapt to this? What's the best I can do with this circumstance? And sometimes the best is a lot and sometimes it's very, very minimal. Sometimes we can really uh, have a moment of opening and more things coming into our lives that we want. And other times the best we can do is hunker down and wait for the whole storm to blow over. Those are all skillful responses and everything in between in life's infinite circumstances. Hmm. That is is huge for us. And then we, if we're being in this kind of tradition, we're having the understanding that... uh, Life is improvisational and that the natural state is a state of profound spontaneity Mm -hmm. and it is unconditioned by uh, specific desires. So this idea of desire uh, in, in the Trika tradition and others like it, desire is what's running the whole creation. But the desire that is upsurging and causing all of these manifestations Uh, these experiences to be available is objectless. It doesn't have a specific goal. It's like improvisational music or improvisational dance. And there's a responsivity to it. So we want to also think about how our desires that have so many objects, (laughs) specific objects, uh, it's causing us suffering because reality itself doesn't have any object. It just wants to express itself. That's all. Mm. So if we can be more like a partner in an improvisational music piece or an improvisational dance where we're just gazing at the other, all of reality, feeling what's happening and responding with skill and spontaneity, that's how we get to that point by looking outward at what's actually happening and feeling it and playing the game like or doing the dance or playing the music of responding in the most skillful way we're able to. And that is pleasurable. Mm. Sometimes I, or I have occasionally told a student to play a video game or they're not called video games anymore, a game app. They're because not called in, video games anymore? Oh, no, man. they're not. You're not that old. <laughs> I thought they were called video games, but again, of course, I've never played video games, so I don't know anything about that world. Oh. Well, anyway, uh, when you're playing a game app, um, you don't know what's going to happen next, and that's like 90% of the enjoyment of it. And you have to respond and adapt on the spot when the next thing happens. Mm. So occasionally when I've had students that are very, very attached to controlling what happens, I've asked them to play specific games so that they can kind of have an experience of the pleasure of adapting, of not knowing what's going to happen and having to adapt on the spot. That is pleasurable if you are not too attached to making things come out your way. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that was incredible. Thank you for taking us on that journey. So uh, there's a couple. I, I know we wanted to end there, but I actually have a couple other um, sure. lovely no um, from the, the Reality Sutras that I wanted to bring in because I think that they're beautiful. And um, um, 
and and also you know as everybody can tell from listening to you you know you have an an incredible ability to make esoteric teachings incredibly relevant and that's what i love about you and so um and these books of course are are no different um and are an extension of that um so 32 reality sutra 32 is ananda is an aesthetic appreciation um lord shiva eternally contemplates his own nature in a state of wonder and amazement at the self and um and so i wanted to um I wanted to read actually this because it's really amazing, um, the end of this um, chapter or sutra. Ananda also includes a kind of clarity that is hard to imagine if we have not experienced it for ourselves. Entering the primordial state of contemplation is accompanied by the advent of blazing clarity in one's vision, mind, and other senses. If a person zoomed in an instant from the ordinary sensing they are experiencing right now to a condition of experiencing the clarity of Ananda, they might find it very difficult to tolerate. The clarity of insight into the condition of beings and circumstances, along with the saturation of colors, sharpness of, sh sharpness of shapes, and the quality of light would be too piercing and intense. As our awareness and senses become more integrated with the natural state, this clarity can extend to other times and places and even past lives. Luckily, as we do sadhana, our body, energy, and mind recalibrate over time and prepare us for this opening into clarity. Ananda, this cosmic bliss, is more like wonder or amazement at the freshness, beauty, diversity, and intelligence of everything. So, you know, so beautiful. Um, I, I, I wanted to kind of find a way of connecting this in some way to what we've been talking about. And, and I guess one of the, one of the observations that I, and certainly not every, not just me, but many people have made, is that you know this kind of teaching of Ananda is often interpreted as being like, oh, I should just feel bliss and happy all the time, which of course, if that's the way you interpret it, can lead to sort of a spiritual bypassing when you know you encounter experiences and 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 uh, feeling states that are not conducive to that. And I yeah. love the way you describe this because um, you know this idea of Ananda as clarity and also of it being very difficult to tolerate. And it sort of reminded me of that a moment in the Bhagavad Gita, right when um, when Krishna shows his true yeah. form. And, exactly. And so I'm wondering, you know, how that connects a little bit to to what we're talking about and and how this teaching of Ananda might be helpful as something to bring into to our considerations or contemplations. Well, anytime you hear anyone say what you should be feeling, that is not helpful to your spiritual life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> because the only material that we have to work with, literally the only material we have is how we actually are feeling. Yeah. yeah. You know, however messy or limited or however that is, we don't have how we should be feeling to work with. So we really need to get that straight. Um, I don't know how that relates to covid <laughs> but i don't know if i can make that leap honestly i know i but thought it was I, a leap but we can go we can we can just I'll have let, let there be a gap there <laughs> okay uh, i do want to say i've been thinking about this actually just this week and maybe it does relate to covid uh, because in my lack of relative lack of upsetness about it just <laughs> Um, not lack of caring, just yeah. lack of upsetness. There have been a few people who are upset with me because I'm not feeling as upset with them right. as they are. I mean, as upset yeah. as they are. So I was saying to them, look, these are students. I was saying, you want me to be, quote unquote, woke to a certain point. But then if it goes too far, you know, you don't want me to be that woke because you want me to be more like you. You know, we were kind of like laughing about that. But that led me to think that between the many, many teachings that happen in this country that are only relative teachings, like lineages and teachers that only give relative teachings, they never get to what the absolute reality actually is. From that to spiritual bypassing, where people are talking about this conceptual idea of Ananda or uh, they don't really have that experience. They maybe have some like little happy experience, but it's not really that. 
in between, I think the space that I really want to inhabit is to be able to talk from my own experience about that absolute nature of reality uh, without or with it being clear that we can entertain this. It is not spiritual bypassing always. It is how things are. And even in the midst of crisis, we can still remember this. We can still remember the absolute nature of reality without bypassing how we are actually feeling. We can still remember and receive teachings and remember within our own wisdom hearts the absolute nature of reality, even as we're experiencing our own karmas manifesting themselves as usual. We have the capacity to hold both. So we shouldn't dismiss the absolute because, as they say in many uh, lineages here in the United States, you know, while people aren't ready for that or they have to go through the relative first, and then somehow they never get to the absolute, right? Uh, and also, we don't need to always dismiss it as spiritual bypassing. So I, I am talking from my own experience 99.99% of the time. Uh, when I am not talking from my own experience, as my students know, I always preface it by saying, I haven't experienced this, but this is what my teachers told me. Uh, and, and it is the... For me, it has always been such a wellspring and sort of open opener uh, of my own small sense of self to recognize that my teachers are having this experience and that it's possible to get there by doing sadhana and just paying attention. So I, I think that even, and maybe even especially, when we're in circumstances that would make us forget the absolute nature of reality, that it is this unbelievably intelligent uh, source of compassion and mercy and wisdom, we can still remember that. We can hold the absolute and the relative together Mm -hmm. in one heart, in one mind, in one body. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't have the kind of experience of what I was talking about when I wrote about Ananda, if you resonate with it at all in your heart, that is experience. So we all receive transmission of the nature of reality in different ways. And one of those ways is simply like a little bell ringing. I don't know why that sounds right to me, but it sounds right to me. I recognize it. I don't have that full experience yet, but I somehow, despite my rational mind, I know it's true. You know, that is really the beginning. That's the seed. And we should hang on to that because that is God speaking to us. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I, I really appreciated what you said at the beginning when you first started talking about this, uh, where you were mentioning how this kind of pattern of people being upset if you're not upset and this associated assumption that if you're not upset in a certain kind of way, then you don't care. And I'm wondering what that comes from. Um, is it because we don't have enough nuance in our understanding of these things that we don't, that we conflate care with being upset? Is it, is it something more? Is what, what's the kind of operative ignorance, so to speak, that's there in that? Well, uh, being upset about something that is fundamentally not upsetting you know, death is fundamentally not upsetting uh, because it is just so natural and normal and nothing is really happening. I mean, according to absolute view and my own experience, nothing is really happening when someone dies. They're, they're still there on some level and something is just resolving back to the unmanifest, to the unconditioned, and it's fine. Ananda Maima got criticized also, believe it or not. Uh, because (laughs) she wouldn't be upset when people died. You know, people just thought that was very, very weird. So we can can see the various karmas that we have. They're just like little forgettings. You know, we forget how things actually are. And it's perfectly natural. We were made that way. We were born that way. I can't go into why that is right now. But the... uh, 
that those forgettings are they have momentum so karma is patterns of energy and awareness moving through time and it has momentum and it wants to survive and if other people don't confirm those patterns for you then they feel threatened <laughs> yeah right so there's a sense that you have to join me in this because I want to perpetuate this feeling. Mm -hmm. I don't want to stop feeling this. I, I, I want company and I want your energy to contribute to the energy of how I'm feeling so I can perpetuate it. Yeah. So I want to um, uh, offer something that I imagine someone could miss what a possible misinterpretation of this, which would be that, okay, well, this is all this very natural and normal. So we, why don't we just let all these people die? You know, like forget all of the masks. It's a totally natural process. So what is, um, what is the teaching that keeps us, um, or what, you know, how do we reconcile this teaching of the kind of naturalness of death with the, um, the commitment to stay engaged and to help others? Yeah. So this is kind of winding back to the beginning of the conversation about compassion being inherent in all of reality. And it's very hard to, for people to understand compassion and mercy and devotion that doesn't have a reason. Like, I'm compassionate toward you because you're suffering. Or I'm uh, devoted to you because you're worth being devoted uh, to. I don't think that's right grammatically, but anyway... <laughs> God's devotion, or a.k.a. reality's devotion, reality's compassion, is objectless. It applies to everything, all beings, all worlds, all inanimate objects, everything. And when you open up your heart, or when your heart is opened, uh, you feel, I mean, I could just as well do, I'm looking right now at my bedroom slippers, I could just as well do puja to them as to a statue of Lord Shiva. I would feel the same devotion. Everything uh, just feels alive and like I feel so in awe and so grateful that all of this has appeared and I can experience all of this and I feel devotion toward all of it. So we think that our compassion and devotion has to have a reason to exist. It doesn't. Even though everything is made of that one self and even though there is no other, there's no other at all, the the devotion toward the appearance of another, the compassion toward the appearance of another naturally flows for no reason. Mm -hmm. Bringing it down to a more practical level, the spiritual teachers that we love and who endure, <laughs> we may love them sometimes, but a lot of them aren't enduring. In any case, the ones that we love and that endure we love them, we feel inspired by them because of their great compassion and their devotion. So just look at, we know that doing practice causes us to become more compassionate and more devotional, not less. There's no such thing as a cold, heartless, spiritual person. <laughs> that just doesn't exist. So this fear that somehow recognizing that all phenomena are natural and com the coming and going is just an experience that's not happening in the way we think it is. Uh, the same teachings that are being given by these teachers are, this, are those teachers who are very compassionate. So it, it, it seems paradoxical from our perspective, but it isn't because the whole fabric of reality is made of compassion. Yeah. And when you get rid of the obscurations that block that it just naturally pours out in every circumstance no matter what mm. wow I, I that was i think the best explanation of of how to reconcile that that i've heard that was beautiful so now let's help some people because you know it is hard to reconcile it intellectually yeah yeah but you explained <laughs> it very well Thanks. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I want to end with uh, what I think is a really beautiful. Oh, this is the wrong one. I had the fruits. Um, uh, one of the uh, the sutras. It's a uh, um, thirty-five, which is the heart is the gateway to unconditioned wisdom. Immersing yourself in the cave of the heart, you discover all guidance, all understanding, all virtue, all space, and the supreme moment. And so um, I guess my question is, how do we 
walk through that gateway. I mean, we're of course talking about it in a multitude of different ways, but um, uh, ending on this note of, of accessing that heart, accessing the heart as a gateway to unconditioned wisdom. Mm-hmm. So the very first way that I learned how to do this was when I was in my mid twenties and I met a teacher who wasn't, you know, a particularly traditional teacher, but in any case, she taught me to go inside my heart space, the cave of the heart in the center of the chest, ask a question and receive an answer. Hmm. So it's kind of like inner divination. (laughs) So I can suggest that we all have an experience, most of us anyway, of knowing what's right for us without any thought process happening. We feel an upsurge from the heart space that says, yes, do this, no, don't do this, uh, or this is right for you, this isn't right for you. Here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. And we all have that, but we override it with our minds and our anxieties and, and our worries. So learning to pause, recognize that upsurge from the heart, the upsurge of wisdom, it's, it's God, it's your own self your own enlightened essence nature talking to you directly from that space. If you know what I'm talking about already, which I think many people will, you pause, you listen to it, and then you follow it without any further contemplation. Don't override it. Don't second guess it. This is very scary because we try to control outcomes with our mind. But if you follow the upsurge of the heart, you cannot go wrong. You cannot make a misstep. It will be the best thing to do. It may not result in what your worried mind is telling you to do or what your emotionally fixated aspects are telling you to do, but it will be the most direct route to relaxation and greater confidence in yourself and freedom. What this teacher taught me gave me tremendous confidence. I mean, it's one of the most important things I ever got taught in my life to be able to do this. And it takes courage. It really takes courage to let go of mind and just follow this inner divination wherever it takes you. But as you do it each time, you get more in contact with wisdom. You have more confidence in it. You have more of a sense of who you really are. You feel much more relaxed in your life when you're doing this. Now, you may feel a lot of fear before acting on that inner wisdom, but the hallmark of that process is that once you act on it, you feel more relaxed. The hallmark of following anxiety and rationalistic mind and emotional fixation is that when you follow it, you still feel emotionally fixated and anxious even afterwards (laughs) you're thinking about it you're still worrying about it etc but when you follow the wisdom heart you're following the heart of compassion you're following god you're following your own essence nature and you always feel a sense of ah right afterwards Mm. wow what a beautiful note to end on well, this has been such a pleasure. I'm so happy that um, I've had this opportunity to chat with you again, and we'll have another one after the 200th episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. It's so auspicious. Uh, so, um, you know, just to end, as we always do, I just would like um, all of our listeners to take the opportunity to... Um, you know, learn more from Shambhavi by buying her books. And you are also doing um, a regular series of satsangs right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about how people can hook up with that? Um, the best thing to do is to request membership in a Facebook page called Jayakula News. So uh, then what will happen is you'll receive a daily notice with a Zoom link. What we started doing, because I'm sequestered at home and I can't see most of my students, which is really sad, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, is I'm doing satsang every single night 
and then in the afternoons on the weekends. So if you want to get in on that, join Jayakula News, and you'll get the notifications. Yes, and and please do that, and then and then tell Shambhavi you uh, you discovered her here on the podcast. I would love to hear that um, students got sent your way because of this. Um, which is always my hope is that people will be exposed to the wonderful teachers that we have on, on that I get to the pleasure of interviewing. Is there anything else that, um, you want to share? I mean, obviously everything's on hold, so you probably don't have any in-person workshops scheduled for the immediate term. Um, but anything else you'd like to share? Well, if, if we get to stop the shelter in place by July, we are going to do a retreat on death and dying. Wow. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Did you plan that before this or? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, but people might be sick of death and dying by then. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. but how, how incredible that you, that, that, given the time that we're in, that that was the, that was the theme. Yeah. So just take care of yourself, take care of each other. Uh, try to stay in contact with what is of real value to you and relax. <laughs> Relaxing is key. Thank you so much, Shambhavi. Okay, love you. Love you.